Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Robert Lopez. He is the author of three novels and two short story collections and a novel and stories. His new book is Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Robert, welcome to the program. Thank you, Jason. It's good to be here. It's an honor to have you here. And first, Robert, before we dive into your new book, I'm hoping you can tell us how you found your way to $2 Radio, who are one of my favorite publishers, and tell us what it has been like to work with them. I suppose it started, I mean, I've been a fan like you of $2 Radio for a long time now. And uh, I'm friendly with a number of their authors. And in the past few years, I got to do an interview with Sarah Rose Etter, who is a good friend. And her book, The Book of X, uh, was terrific. And I interviewed her for that. And uh, after that exchange, I got an email sometime in the next year from Eliza Obanoff of $2 Radio. And she asked me if I was interested in taking a look at Gina Nutt's essay collection that they were publishing. And I did, and I liked it a lot. And during that correspondence, I told her that I was working on a nonfiction book and was wondering if they might be interested in having a look. And I sent it to them. And I didn't hear back for a while as, you know, is the normal practice of every uh, publisher in the world. Mm. And uh, actually on my birthday, maybe like a year later, uh, I got an email from Eric saying that he loved the book. He had some ideas as to uh, what we could do with it and wondered what I thought. And after a day of back and forth, we we said, let's do it. And working with them has been uh, the best experience uh, that I've had in publishing. They, they're both, Eric and Eliza, are terrific editors with great vision and wisdom. And they have a tenacity. It's really quite extraordinary what they do and how they go about their business. And I, this book, more you know, not more than this book, felt like a collaboration, and, and in a way that I've never at all. And I've had good experiences with publishers. Uh, Bellevue Literary Press was a terrific experience. Design Books has published a number of my uh, a number of my uh, works, but but Two Dollar Radio takes it to a whole new level and. It's uh, it was an absolute pleasure working with Eric and Eliza, knowing how much they cared about the book, how much they believed in it, and and, and what they saw in it, and their suggestions editorially were wonderful. And I wound up incorporating a good many of their thoughts, and uh, it, it was a genuine. Uh, one of the, the best experience that I've had in publishing, for sure. 
That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Robert. And listeners, of course, uh, both uh, Gina Nutt and Sarah Rose Edder are on past episodes of this podcast. We did a panel with Sarah at the uh, Hopscotch Music Festival in Raleigh, a books and bands panel, which was a whole lot of fun. Um, Well, let's now dive into your excellent new book, Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere. Um, You open your book by writing, quote, what I don't know about my family is everything, end quote. And Robert, I want to ask, do you think this is the typical experience for a person in 2023, specifically for a person living in the United States of America in 2023 that one uh, doesn't know much about their own family? You know, I think one of the one of the things that, that Eric and Eliza responded to is that this book does speak to a, a particular uh, experience as an American and and what we um, and how we go about our lives as members of families and, and how however deep the family connection might be or how shallow the family relations are. And for me, I suppose that there is something to be said for this lack of knowledge and connection and history with a lot of American families. Um, I think it's probably, it's hard to say. I, I think it's a very intriguing question. And for my money, you know, that first line, what I don't know about my family is almost everything. You would think that my experience with my family would have been one of uh, a distance or an alienation or some kind of disaffection. And that certainly wasn't the case. I came from a very loving and supportive nuclear family. It was just that we never talked about the preceding generations. We never we never talked about where we come from and what life was like uh, in Puerto Rico. Um, and I'm also half Italian, and I didn't get much from the Italian side either. And and as a result of all that, I, I just don't know so much about the people who were responsible for me being here. And along with the uh, the Puerto Rico side, which was the dominant theme of the book, not only have I lost the history, you know, like I don't know much about my grandfather's life either in Puerto Rico when he was born and raised there or when he came to to New York City in probably the 1920s, the cuisine, music. Um, So I think that's probably something that a lot of American people can connect to, losing that sense of family history. And as a result, you lose a part of yourself in that. Uh, And so I, I do hope that this element is something that readers can connect to and perhaps as a result of that feel a little bit more connected to you know all of us somehow yeah absolutely thank you so much robert um next i want to ask you about the formatting of your book when i think about dispatches i think about the book of that name by journalist michael Hare, which is about vietnam um what, Robert, does the term dispatches mean as it relates to your book? And how is that related to the formatting? 
Well, the book initially was a bunch of essays that were uh, braided essays that concerned multiple uh, narrative lines, you might say, in each essay. But it was just a collection of essays. And, and it was Eric's idea. He said, well, what if we make this one book like that essay? And uh, I loved that suggestion and thought, okay, if we're going to do this, then the way to do it is to do it in these very short chapters. Like, so these dispatches, I also think of like some embedded journalist somewhere, you know, phoning in uh, reports or even like with telegraphy or something. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I wanted the, the individual chapters to be these communiques from various elements of what the entire book is going after. And I wanted some of them to be very short, very cutting, some whimsical, others dark, others completely fictional, um, and, and playing with that form and allowing for all of the narrative possibilities with family history, with Puerto Rican history, with uh, how tennis works in the book, um, it allowed for the short burst chapters that the fragmented and fractured nature of those chapters, of those dispatches, and each chapter has a different dispatch heading uh, and title. Uh, I wanted each of those dispatches to feel and be representative and emblematic of my experience of coming from what seems like a fractured history. And that I only know very select fragments of my family. And, and it felt like that marriage of form and content was the, the perfect arrangement. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Robert. Um, do you consider Puerto Rico to be a part of the United States and further, do you think the average citizen of the United States considers Puerto Rico to be a part of the United States? Um, I think the answer, uh, the short answer is no on both counts. I, I don't think of Puerto Rico as being part of the United States. There's way too much that Puerto Ricans on the island do not have access to as citizens. I mean, they are citizens of the United States. States of America, yet, you know, they can't vote for president. And, you know, there's a whole page in the book of everything that the, that uh, Puerto Ricans can't do uh, as citizens. And, and they're the only citizens of uh, the United States in 2023 uh, who don't enjoy equal protection and, and, and things like this. So, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's in name only. It's Puerto Rico. It, and certainly most people wouldn't think, I know there are uh, polls that have been conducted over the past few years and the overwhelming majority of United States citizens uh, in the last few years have don't know that Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Right. And um, do you think Puerto Rico will ever be granted statehood and why or why not? I don't think Puerto Rico will ever grant statehood. And I don't think the Republicans 
in Congress will ever allow it. Because if if it were, you know, we'd have two more senators and that would tip the, the balance probably in the favor of the Democrats, although I don't think that is a mortal lock. And um, so that sort of representation, just like D.C. won't be a state ever. Uh, this is, is the same thing with Puerto Rico. The Republicans in, in, in the Senate and, and Congress uh, won't won't ever allow that to happen. Right. Um, well, thank you so much, Robert, for that answer. Uh, listeners, we're going to take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. And then I will be right back with Robert Lopez. The Book and Podcast is sponsored by Libro FM Audiobooks. Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Robert Lopez, author of Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Robert, um, you spend a lot of time in this book writing about derogatory terms, uh, specifically the word spick, um, which you have uh, sort of assimilated that term during different parts of your life, much like other people have assimilated other derogatory terms in other cultures. Um, do you think this is healthy behavior to turn a word meant as an insult into a word of power and why or why not? Um, yeah, I, I, I think it, it is, you know, kind of taking ownership of a word and turning it around and, and making it uh, and making it mean something quite else, having it not be this derogatory term. Um, I think that's a very human thing to do. And I can. Uh, I appreciate that for what for what it is. And. Uh, yeah. And so for me, as a writer, as somebody who who works with language and who appreciates language in and of itself, you know, the idea of of, of a bad word is is ridiculous, of course. Right. All words are words. I mean, it's only how somebody uses a word that could possibly be uh, problematic or injurious. Um, so, you know, there are no bad words. And so the, the derogatory terms that there's uh, a running theme in the book. Yeah. I, I uh, you know, at one point I call a lot of those words ridiculous because so many of them sound ridiculous. Just the actual acoustical properties of the words themselves sound ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I was in high school, um, a bunch of uh, the Lat Latino students, we would call each other by by the word spick uh, as a term of endearment. Um, and... Uh, you know, I think I, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing as far as 
taking ownership of it or kind of removing its uh, its potency somehow or undermining it. We we were just, you know, maybe we did it instinctively. So yeah, I I, I enjoy um, I enjoy that memory of doing that with my friends and having them call me. Um, a spaghetti being half Puerto Rican and half Italian. Um, and yeah, I, I, whenever I see any group take ownership of a derogatory term, you could understand why. And, and, uh, and it, and it does, it turns it around. It completely turns the, the, the dynamic around. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Robert, um, I now want to ask you about a quote in your book, and this is a quote by Isaac Babel, and it is, no iron spike can pierce a human heart as icily as a period in the right place, end quote. Robert, what do these words mean to you? What what that means to me, Jason, is is the, the, the power of, of language of poetry, of prose, that we can get leveled by a string of words in the hands of that kind of artist. And one of the the, the talents that I think most writers possess is and, and, and most careful readers possess is is that ability for a run of language for a sentence or a line to take your breath away to hit you where you live and um, so for me when I when I use that bobble quote in the book and and I think about it it's not so much you know the actual punctuation of a period in the exact right place it's it's the assemblage of words that when put together and also knowing when to stop, like when, when, to, when do you put the period in that run of, of words? Um, all of it combines to have a tremendous impact on a reader. And it's, you know, going after those moments. You don't want to try to write that kind of sentence with every sentence, but picking your spots to, to do that, to try to take the, the reader's breath away um, is what I think of when I when I read that quote, when I think about that quote, and when I use that quote in uh, in the book. Absolutely, thank you, Robert. And now a question about another quote um, about writing in words. One which you state that you have often misquoted. Um, the actual quote is: "When a writer is born into a family, that family is." finished. And we are recording this, Robert. Um, this interview won't come out for a couple months closer to the publication of your book, but we were recording this during the week that Prince Harry's memoir is out. Uh, and there has been a viral photo circulating of his memoir displayed next to a book called How to Kill Your Family, um, which is very <laughs> apt in the context of this quote. So Robert, um, how do you use this quote specifically when you are teaching? Well, very often, you know, I whether I'm teaching undergraduate writers or graduate students, uh, one thing that they do 
at an alarming they, they they there's a certain palpable fear that comes through on the page that the writer is not going to the dangerous areas and so i, I try to use that quote to encourage writers to risk everything and and, and that means risking the relationships you might have with your family. Now, you know, I, it doesn't mean betraying confidences. It doesn't mean, it certainly doesn't mean anything that could be, uh, you know, libelous or slanderous or anything like that. Um, but to get to any emotional truth, you have to not hold anything back. And I've encountered any number of young writers over the years who are working with material that is inherently interesting, but they are reluctant to let the emotional undercurrent of whatever it is they're doing really pop through the page due to, oh, I don't want to upset my parents. I don't want to, you know, expose my sister, my brother. I, I've heard all of these, um, all of these explanations as to why writers hold back. And the only way that you could do this and have an impact on readers and get to where you want to get as a writer is to be fearless. And one of the ways to demonstrate that fearlessness is to write about your family. Um, that, you know, Flannery O'Connor said, if, if, if a writer survives a childhood, you have to write about for the rest of your life. And childhood is spent in the company of family and uh, those relationships and dynamics, you have to draw upon that as a writer. And if it somehow alienates you from someone, then uh, that's the risk you have to take. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, uh, Robert. And just for the record, I'm not advocating for Prince Harry's book. I'm not going to read that. <laughs> I don't. I never understood the fascination with the royal family, but I guess some people are all about it. Um, yeah, neither do I. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I now want to ask you about tennis. Uh, you are a tennis player. There's a tennis racket on the cover uh, of your book. And this is a two-part question. One, um, what does tennis mean to you and two what does tennis mean to literature and i'm specifically thinking not only about your work uh but the work of david foster wallace and others for example well tennis means everything to me i mean it's other than like my my relationships um it, it comes next uh it, it is you know I, I played today for an hour and a half um and I'm already looking forward to Monday when I'm going to be playing again. Uh, it, it keeps me, it keeps me uh, occupied, and it keeps me sane. I think if I didn't have that outlet of running around and, and smacking the hell out of a ball, that um, it's my therapy for you know, for life. Um, so that's what it means to me. Uh, it also means connection. I, I have a whole host of 
friends who I've played tennis with over the years and who I've played with, who I wouldn't have met otherwise. And uh, these relationships are really important to me. In fact, uh, in just a couple of hours, I have a bunch of friends coming over and we're playing poker and it's all my tennis guys, right? So, you know, these are uh, relationships that are important to me. And as far as the the how it works in in writing, uh, if you think about what tennis is, right? You you have a you have you're facing someone on the other side of the court, and you are sending the ball to them, and they are sending it to you, and you're sending it to them, and there is so much strategy that goes in, into. Uh, a tennis rally, a particular point. Um, and it's so nuanced. Different spins and pace and and direction and drop shots and lobs and all of the various elements of, of tennis, I think, directly relate to the practice of writing. And more, even though tennis, you are standing on the opposite side of the court, with a net in the middle from an opponent or a hitting partner, you're really playing with and against yourself. Um, so much of, you know, one of the biggest statistics in tennis is unforced errors, right? They always have a running count of unforced errors. And obviously the, you want to minimize your unforced errors. And, and that directly relates to writing, right? I mean, it's very similar to, subject matter and, and language. And so I think there are a bunch of writers I know who play tennis. In my little community here at Fort Greene, Brooklyn, there are a host of writers who are uh, who are tennis players and some really, really good tennis players too. So that the tennis has found its way into the work for me, uh, for David Foster Wallace, who was a very good tennis player and of course wrote beautifully about the game. Uh, it is, a, it is a natural thing to, to write about because the connected tissue between writing and tennis uh, is everywhere. And, and it's in, in a way that, you know, I'm a big sports fan and, and all the, the major North American sports. I'm a huge hockey fan and baseball, and basketball, and football. And I played them all in the wonderful sports. And, and uh, I have great memories of playing all those sports. Uh, but there's something about being alone on one side of the court uh, that really lends itself to to writing and narrative. Yeah, absolutely. Um, who's the greatest tennis player of all time? For my money, it's Roger Federer. Uh, certainly the most elegant, the most beautiful. Uh, and his career was extraordinary. He is, you know, he's been eclipsed now as far as the Grand Slam count. But Grand Slams are an important measure of a, of a tennis player, but not the be-all, end-all. And I think his longevity, his consistency um, makes him the greatest tennis player of all time. If you want to say Nadal, Rafael Nadal, I would have no By the time he gets it up, Novak Djokovic can well assume that mantle but i'm not ready to to say Djokovic is the best player ever quite yet right on thank you robert um finally you write a lot about 
Puerto Rican identity, about parades and the flag. Um, and this is going to be another multi-part question. Uh, but you write that you have never felt very passionately about these things, flags, parades, etc. cetera. Uh, do you think that many people of Puerto Rican descent feel this way? Or do you feel like you are an anomaly? And to flesh out that question... Do you think your lack of passion for a country's flag and cultural parades is healthy or unhealthy? And can you compare this to how a typical child in the United States approaches something like the Pledge of Allegiance? Um, again, really good questions, Jason. I uh, Again, for me, my, my grandfather seeks the died in 1987 i was 16 years old so i knew him I, I i spent time with him and but yet i didn't really know him i didn't know anything about him uh it was a very superficial relationship and i didn't know anything uh about him through my father my father didn't really talk about him or his grandparents and and where we came from puerto rico so for me, it was just language to put out in the world. Oh, yeah, I'm half Puerto Rican, but it didn't feel like a, I didn't feel Puerto Rican. I wasn't given any of that culture. I wasn't given any of that history, the language. So as a result of all of that, it just the Puerto Rican flag may as well have been the, the French flag or, or the Japanese flag. It just it was as foreign to me as Japan and France. So, of course, I wouldn't feel any sort of kinship or connection to it. And I do, you know, I wish it were otherwise. Um, this has been the only life I've known, of course. But, you know, if I had my druthers, if I could be the master of the world in this one particular small arena, I would have said to my grandfather, you know what? Teach your son Spanish. Speak Spanish to him. Make sure he speaks Spanish back. Make sure he grows up to speak Spanish so he could teach his kids and which would be me and my sister. And then we could have that for ourselves. Um, and I think it had that happened. I would think to an extent that I would feel much differently about Puerto Rico and the flag and, and the, anything that goes along with it. There have been times where being an American felt like something to be proud of, particularly many years ago. Um, and certainly on the morning of September 11th, when the United States was attacked by terrorists, there was a swelling of, of American togetherness and, and a certain pride of being American. And no, you know, they can't do that to us kind of a thing. And, and feeling connected to America. Um, in a way that I believe a lot of people felt in during the 1940s when Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. You know, there were, in the wake of that experience, hundreds of thousands of, of American men enlisted. And it, it was there was a similar response, not quite as vociferous to September 11th. Um, but the, everyone felt connected and together during that time. And I could tell probably like a dozen anecdotes that illustrate that from my, you know, just off the top of my head, I could remember these things. 
So, but I haven't felt that way about America in a long time. I think what's gone on politically um, has has really been a uh, a dampener on any sort of pride or uh, real connection to what this American identity or even the American experiment might mean. And as a result, like the pledge of, like, the more I think, of course, when I was a school kid, I recited the Pledge of Allegiance. Yeah, I didn't know any, it was, I was in, that was the 1970s and the 80s, early 80s, and I just did it because everybody did it. That's what you did. Never really thought about the words, right? I pledge allegiance to the United States of America, you know, like, it's like this indoctrination of it sounds insane to me now, right? Um, so I can understand if young people uh, recoil from that. I'm also heartened by the by young people protesting what's gone on in this country as much as uh, as they have over the course of the last you know however many years. Um, I think that's you know as much as this country has disappointed so many of us, so many of us are still invested in trying to make it better um, and, and trying in some ways it feels like to salvage it. Uh, so any sort of disaffection that a young person might feel about the United States of America and saying the Pledge of Allegiance, I totally understand. Um, and uh, I think that's probably a healthy thing and at the same time i do hope that this level of activism and an investment in the future and what we can all do to make this a better place for everybody um is something worth doing and uh you know i hope it continues to get done but at the same time i also think that if this country were to dissolve, this United States of America dissolved into, say, instead of one superpower into seven or eight states and maybe some city states, uh, I think that would also would be fine. I mean, economically, it might be screwing for a lot of people, but uh, you know, this the superpower thing is is problematic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you so much, Robert, and thank you for writing uh, this fantastic and truly remarkable memoir. Listeners, I've been speaking with Robert Lopez, author of Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere, which is published by our friends at $2 Radio. Robert, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Jason. It's been a pleasure. Once again, I would like to thank Robert Lopez for joining me. Copies of Dispatches from Puerto Nowhere can be purchased at www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsors, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking.